Welcome back to another brand new episode of Learning As I Go and I am thrilled today to be joined by a good friend of mine, Joe Thompson. Joe started off as a Man United player at a young age and then went on to play professionally but managed to overcome cancer twice in his career. His story literally has blown my mind and I'm thrilled to be able to share it with you today. Brace yourself for a very emotional episode but here we go for another life lesson with Learning As I Go. Joe Thompson, thank you for being with us today. No, an absolute privilege, you know, I feel like uh, imposter syndrome's kicking in already. Wow. Do I deserve to be here? But no, I'm really looking forward to it. 100%. I'm just trying to take it back to where we first met. And I, like everybody who I've met over the years, I feel like it was a visa. It probably was. Yeah, <laughs> like, it probably was. I remember your face turning up every now and then in the VIP and stuff back in the day. Is that where we first met? Yeah, I'd say so. You know, I'm looking over Manchester now as we speak and definitely Manchester nightlife. Yeah, one of them playing professional football uh, originally at Rochdale when I kind of first started making some headway in the game. And as you start to get to know some of the older ones, they put you under their wing and uh, you start to venture out a little bit. Go to the best places in town. That's it. This is what the promoters were telling me. So I was just following them and doing what I needed to do. That's kind of what I remember you. um, Fresh footballer, good looking lad, full of energy. Let's go back to the start because I know you didn't really have an easy childhood. And you weren't originally from Manchester or up north. Where were Mm -hmm. you from and what was your childhood like? So originally I was born down in Bath. And any time I say Bath, people straight away think, you know, wonderful place if you've been. Wonderful. Sounds posh. It is. Right. It is. But... It's a very affluent area as well, but if you don't have much money, and we didn't, uh, and I say we, that's my mum and my younger brother, because my dad, um, for a large part of my life now, has been in and out of prison for various crimes. Um, So I've never really had that male role model that I probably craved and needed at times. And then when I speak about my mum, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman, but she does suffer from mental health problems. Mm. So she was diagnosed with bipolar, at the age of, I was eight, and my younger brother was five. So one of my first childhood memories is being at home and two psychiatrists come and knock on the flats. Kind of high-rise flats, as it tends to be, you know. And like I say, Bath, wonderful place, but we lived in quite a rough area, riddled with crime and drugs. And uh, so two doctors come knocking, straight away you're thinking, well, what do they want? And I just remember them taking my mum away. And thankfully for me, my auntie, you know, brought us up north uh, to Rochdale and to Manchester. And that's where we started to rebuild our life. My mum then had to have like three months worth of like treatment. And once she got well, she then come and joined us up here. So that was quite tough because I remember when we came north, obviously we've got all those uncertainties and not knowing why my mum's been taken away because we just adored her. Mm-hmm. Um, she is our inspiration. And with bipolar, um, there's like a magic to it. But if it's not channeled and life can get on top of people, it can spiral out of control. So talk me through that. Like how did that sort of um, condition affect her life and how did it affect her relationship with you? 
Good, good question. Um, and, you know, I'm a big advocate of mental health and a lot of the time when I look at it, I know a lot because of what I've seen and what I've experienced. So she's been in and out of psychiatric wards now for 20 years, wow. 25 years. And it's been tough. There's been some horrible situations that we found ourselves in. I never like visitor on a psychiatric ward because I don't feel that she, I suppose, belongs there. But it is was challenging. She'll always say that we was embarrassed about her at times. We were never embarrassed about mm. her. But we maybe didn't wanna I kinda say sing it from the rooftops mm. because we knew that, you know, these things were happening. So anytime that something goes wrong in my life or in, you know, someone's life within the family, I straight away think of my mum and how it's gonna affect her and what can we do to almost protect her mm. so your mum obviously came out of um psychiatric ward and she came to manchester with you and you were staying with your auntie and then am i right in thinking that you found football and ended up getting signed to manchester united at the age of nine years old correct yeah and it was like my life almost flipped upside down within six months of, of coming here so three months of her getting treatment she then joins us in a little council estate in Rochdale which was an eye-opener because first encountered racism so wow. like Bath very multicultural very cosmopolitan um, whereas little town in Rochdale was getting called all names under the sun mm. so you then have to learn to be able to deal with with that but yeah I think for me the golden ticket was signing for Manchester United I can't get my head around this so I <sighs> Being signed to Man United at the age of nine, mm -hmm. especially back then, like that's that the, the the golden era of yeah. United. What was going through your mind at that time? So I got into football to basically integrate into a new community, find new friends. So obviously, you go to a new school, trying to fit in on the playground, start playing with some of the, the kids. They then say, you know what, this kid's got a little bit, got involved with the local team. And I think it was in about. A month of playing for the local team, scouts were starting to come down. And then I played in a like a five-a-side tournament in um, Langley, well, just kind of Middleton. And uh, that's when a scout came and approached the coach and my mum. And we said, like, we'd love to invite him down on a, a six-weeks trial. And, yeah, then when obviously you turn up at the cliff, as it was at the time, uh, you can see the history that is Manchester United. And it was an unbelievable time. Very, very privileged. Maybe didn't maximise the opportunity, looking back at it, uh, for various reasons. But uh, some wonderful memories. And I always say, you know, the coaches, for me, taught me things way beyond the white lines of a football pitch. Mm, I can imagine. So you played for United for, was it like seven years? Yeah. So got released at 16. And then in your sort of head and your expectations, I'm guessing was you're going to be a professional footballer, you're going to be earning huge amounts of money. And then at the age of 16, you get released. Is that right? Yeah. So it was, uh, like you say, you love football and you knew you was representing Man United on and off the pitch. Got to travel the world. So you got to sample little things like no 15, 16 year old should be going to America and having fans outside you know, the hotel waiting for signatures for you to potentially be wow. the next best thing. And I remember my school teacher would always try and keep me in check, but I'd be practicing the signature at the back <laughs> of the book. Um, and he'd be like, listen, you're going to need um, a plan B at some point. And they were totally right, but 
stubborn, ambitious, uh, driven, motivated. And I had high standards and high aspirations. So when you've got the class of 92 doing what they're doing at the, you know, the pinnacle of football, mm. treble. Then when we moved to, to Carrington, they were like the pioneers of um, the academies, mm. as you see now. And it was amazing, magical times. But you do have an air of arrogance that comes with it. So when I got released, they did it the best they could. An element of class. They knew about my mum's mental health as well. So they sat everybody down. Um, they spoke to my auntie, who was the one that would always take me to training. And I suppose the reality hit maybe two or three weeks later. And I didn't tell anyone through fear of being embarrassed, ashamed. You almost feel like you, you've lost your identity for a little bit. So... The tag had been, you know, Joe Thompson, the kid that plays for Man United. That wasn't the case anymore. So how am I going to deal with that? And I had a chip on my shoulder. I definitely did. I look back at it and say to the younger ones that I mentor now, football doesn't owe you anything. So, you know, park that ego. So I had to go and do the rounds. And I went in at, you know, Liverpool, Bolton, uh, Blackburn, Wigan. And nothing was good enough. Mm. <laughs> So you've obviously been released from United. You're going through this transition period. You've obviously got a chip on your shoulder. You're doubting probably yourself at the time. But you did manage then to kind of find a way back into football. And you played, um, which league was it? You uh, went down to League Two. Right. So it was like a big fall from grace. You go from there to there. And I remember it was a PE teacher that said to me, what's up? Uh, and like I said, I'd not told anyone. I was in the middle of my GCSEs as well. So I'd had all those teachers tell me, make sure you, you know you look after your education and it hit me flush in the face so the chip on the shoulder was there but that was just a defense mechanism that mm -hmm. was bravado because i was hurting inside so i did do what i needed to do with my gcse's i came away with some good grades and my mum even sent me back in and said you know i think you picked up the wrong <laughs> paper <laughs> um, did you actually do that yes you did um and I never really struggled at school, um, but I was, my heart was never in it. I never wanted to do, you know, anything particularly academic. Um, so when I went down to Rochdale, this PE teacher said, look, I can see you, you've lost your confidence, um, but go and enjoy yourself again and go and play free. And that was two or three sentences, I suppose, that changed my life from someone that I respected because we had that relationship in regards to, you know, PE. But... A little golden nugget so I went down and you know I parked that ego like I mentioned and I enjoyed myself came across a coach straight away that knew about me um, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say this now but I went and I forgot to take my little earrings out and I had the little cubic zirconians <laughs> in and he said you can, get, yeah, 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 you can get you can get rid of them straight away and I was like wow okay um, but I loved it I loved, you know, playing football. The one thing I really pride myself on is uh, competition. I think it's healthy. It helps you grow. And if you, you know, you, you go about it the right way, win, lose or draw, you know, still have that integrity and that element of class, then it's amazing. So I was doing that and I was kind of fast forwarded into the first team by 17. Wow. Fast forward, I played five years for Rochdale. Then get quite a big money move to Tranmere Rovers or in the league above. Wow. So those aspirations of getting to the championship and the Premier You're doing League. It. 
yeah, where, I don't know, people in football may say, I should have played that. That's something that I have to accept. And there's various reasons for not getting to those heights that I'm accountable for, for definite. Now I'm doing what I love to do. I've met my partner, my wife, Chantel. Who's beautiful, by the way. I remember Chantel back in the day. Like, she was a catch. <laughs> like, literally, you two were like posh and becks, mate. No, no, no. Like, she, honestly. She's a gorgeous human being. She's, inside she's stunning, out, like, yeah. literally. And you were with her from such an, an early age. And you're still together now, which is incredible. Yeah, and, you know, that's kind of testament to us. But, you know, you spoke about it at the start, about being in Manchester. I knew... Going out every weekend was not for me. Mm. So I always say quite a charismatic personality. That place could eat me up and I could get lost and I could lose myself. So I needed an anchor uh, and Chantel is that for me. And, you know, we moved out of the city to, to Presswich and a little home, two, you know, nice cars on the drive. And then we found out that she was pregnant. So it all happened quite quick mm. within 18 months. And then when I found out that I was having a little girl, I was like, wow, how am I going to deal with this? In a male environment, day in, day out, what am I going to do with you're this still, little one? You're still a boy at that age. At 23, yeah, I was. And I was, a, I was a young 23 as yeah. well. A bit of a Jack the Lad that wanted to be in and around all the jokes. So those pressures of fatherhood were on my shoulders. Wow. Uh, Chantel has always been, you know, very successful in her own right. And, you know, she's a bit of a, a machine in the beauty industry now. Um, but she was doing very well herself, but she was going to need time off work to enjoy being, mm. you know, a new mum. So it was tough. And now I've moved to Tramway, I'm having to do a little bit of travelling. I was staying over a few nights. I was finding it very hard to play free. Uh, but then in the second season, I went into it with, right, this is it. This second season, I'm going to make it. I'm going to kick on. And I was doing that. And within the space of, I started the season, I scored a few goals, man of the matches, winning games. And then I just noticed something changed. And I was putting a lot of my tiredness and fatigue down to being a new dad. Right. Sleepless nights, um, just adjusting to day-to-day -day life. And then some lumps popped up in the left-hand side of my neck. And I've got like a, a little scar here still uh, from where I had a little biopsy. And it was to basically see what was wrong with me. Uh, and thankfully for me, I, I confided in the club doctor. But every time I was getting my arm out at football, I was getting this sharp shooting pain towards the middle of my chest. And I then speak to the doctor. He then sends me off to a specialist. And within four days of having that biopsy, I then go with Chantel and Lula in the pram. And I'm thinking they're going to tell me I've got an infection or glandular fever or something like that. And then he told me I've got cancer. Wow. Yeah, so 23, cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is effectively a cancer of your immune system. And he told me that I probably had it for like three years. I wanted the ground to, you know, swallow me up and uh, no shame in saying it on here. I cried. That then meant Chantel burst into tears. Lula was kicking off in the pram. And I always say kind of when I came round and it would have only been a matter of seconds, I did what us men do. You touched upon it before, bravado. I was like, right, okay. And I remember sitting up and saying, right, what have I got to do? Um, because I prided myself on being the rock of the family. 
the provider and the protector. But I was going to need looking after now. So he said, you're going to have to go and have six months worth of chemotherapy. So this is in October 2013. And I said to him, right, well, I'm going to be back playing then by the end of April. And he went, let me just stop you there, young man. Your life is hanging in the balance. And I was like, but what do you mean? He was like, you probably had it for three years. And because you've been so fit, you, your body's tried to adapt and deal with it as best as it could. But fundamentally, you're at stage four S. And you get to five, you're kind of classed as terminal. And I was like, wow, uh, okay. So he said, you're going to have to have six months worth of mm. chemo. You're going on a Monday. If you're well enough, you'll go home on the Monday night. But if not, you'll stay until Tuesday and you'll go and do that for 12 cycles. So I was like, right, okay. And you're going to go on a young oncology unit. So anybody between 25 and down, you could be having treatment with. So I've sat in a hospital ward with five, six, seven-year-olds who have known nothing but pain and suffering. And I just remember holding on to the fact that, one, I had a little girl. I played professional football, the game I loved. And I met the love of my life. Mm. So, what have I got to complain about? Mm. Um, and I could empathise with a lot of the parents that were coming in because I got my own little girl. And I remember going in one day and there was this little girl there who... She had long, beautiful hair. And then the following two weeks when I went in, she had just little strands. And I remember crying and a counsellor coming and speaking to me. And he said, what's up? I said, well, you know, this little girl is clearly trying to put on a brave face. And here I am, um, trying to be, you know, the beacon of light because some of these kids knew who I was. And there was a lot of press and attention around it and you know don't get me wrong the footballing world as it tends to do in its beautiful way unites when someone's going through something and it did that but it was quite overwhelming as well mm. getting back to messages and how are you doing I just felt like saying I'm doing shit I'm struggling <laughs> I really am but to see this little girl it sent me under if I'm being honest mm. mate so when you say then um the young girl sent you under and I was talking to you on the way up here in the lift. I was talking about perspective. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes I get so low and I think, and a lot of the time it's about stuff with business or nothing that's really that serious, but I can't shake it off sometimes. And obviously reading through your story, knowing your story, I was talking about perspective going, like, I feel like I need this today from Joe to like almost go, wait a second, like this is how bad life could be. And not saying that my problems don't mean anything or anyone's mm -hmm. problems don't mean anything. But do you feel like because this young girl was going through something at such a younger age than you and she still managed to be brave, that it kind of made you feel empowered in a way to go, if she can do it, then I need to go through it? Yeah. And gratitude is a, is a huge thing that I'm massive from because we all have problems, you know, we do. But when you look at it from a, a wider perspective, I always say... Problem or possibility, obstacle or opportunity, and you've got decisions to make at certain points in your life. And just see adversity as growth. What can I learn? And this is probably why I'm here because of the podcast and what I see you doing, your journey 
uh, even down to the name of the podcast. Mm. I love it. So I think we are all on a journey. Um, we are all doing our best. But the more conversations that we have like this and the more we break down those barriers, change certain stigmas and also change the narrative and normalise these conversations, the better people will be. And we'll get to a point where we thrive and we come together and, you know, that word collaboration happens all the time now. Whereas before, it'd always be like, stay in your lane. I'm doing this. If you're over there, good luck on that one. But I do think that little girl was a big moment in my life that it changed my outlook on life, but it showed me what I was always grateful for, but maybe not aware of. Um, so yeah, I had loads of positives and I just knew that once I overcome this, like my mantra, and I live off, you know, mantras, and I say live because people say them, you see them on certain walls, but you've got to embody them. So my mantra is don't live life to survive, live life to thrive. So once you've gone through that hard time, share it, speak on it, and then someone else will come back to you and go, you know what, I've been through something similar. Mm. Well, how can we then get to the next level together and then go and pass that baton on to many more? It's powerful, man. I like it a lot. People always say as well, like, when you do get cancer, it's a fight, right? And you've got to be strong to fight against it. Do you feel like if you didn't find that strength to fight against it, that it could have beaten you? Is that the case with cancer? Do you, do you believe it's a mindset as well and, and an attitude? Yeah. I've seen people, um, I say the kind of lights of life leave them within the sentence. So I've been in rooms where people have been told to terminally ill and I've seen the lights go. I've been conversating with them previously. They've been full of life. Uh, and then the doctors come in five minutes later and that's it. So I've lost friends, a lot of friends through cancer. And for me being here, I said at the start about imposter syndrome, I call my stuff survivor's guilt. I have that, I definitely do. Like I bear loads of scars on my body, covered up by a lot of tattoos now. Um, but I have emotional scars as well and psychological scars that I'm working my way through. So to get back to playing football after the first time, but then three and a half years on when you speak to any cancer patient, two years is a big marker in remission. To get to three, you're thinking, right, I'm into the big bad world. So three and a half years on, I go for one more scan on Christmas Eve. So basically the first time you got cancer, yep. you went on to beat it. Yep. And how long did that take you? Six months. So I si did the treatment, yeah. So six months, you beat it in six months. And then you, you managed to go back to football. And I remember this. This was like the talk of the city. <laughs> everyone was so proud. Yeah. Like you were like the shining light for everyone who was going through anything. And then this sort of three and a half years later, yep. when you're back playing at a, a decent level, you get told that it's it's gone come back into remission. Is that right? Is that not so? I'd relapse. You relapse. Basically. Sorry. Yeah. So remission, all clear. Yeah. Relapse. Yeah, relapse. So when he told me the cancer had come back, back being the word, wow, never felt anything like it because I was naive and ignorant to it all the first time round. So adrenaline's, you know, getting me through a lot of it. Whereas this time round, I knew what was coming. I was going to have to have way more treatment. And I was going to have to do two cycles, but I'd go to the Christie's, which is, you know, a magical place uh, here in Manchester and the doctors and the nurses. 
and everybody associated with the Christies are like guardian angels. My mum was a nurse there for 20 years. Yeah, so yeah. I've got the utmost respect for your mum because they keep people alive, not just from the treatment, just from the little smiles, just from the little conversations, picking up on certain things when people aren't doing so well uh, and keeping that light going. So when they told me that the cancer had come back, I go with Chantelle again and I just wanted to smash the room up, mate. Mm. I've got a relationship now with the doctor uh, and the specialists and the team. So when they said that and they told me that first time round, large watermelon sized masses of tumours on my chest. It was down in my spleen, either side of my neck, in my armpits, it was everywhere. Whereas the second time round, I've got one tumour right next to my heart. So I said to him, can we not just take it out? And he said, no, Joe, I think, you know, if he was to do an operation like that to try and take this tumour out, it's that close to your heart, we run the risk of painting this room red. So I think you know what that means. So I said, right, what have I got to do? He said, you're going to have to have chemotherapy again. You're going to have two cycles and you're being at the Christie's for six days solid, 24 hour chemo for six days. Okay, you'll go home for three weeks, then you'll repeat that. But what you're going to have to do off the back of that is undergo what's called a stem cell transplant. And when I say this, not very many people know what a stem cell transplant is. I don't. And I'm totally cool with that. And I'm, you know what? I'm delighted you don't because a stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant is effectively the worst chemotherapy you can have. And it's that bad, they put you in kind of solitary confinement. They put you in isolation because you are on hourly watch. They come in, they clean the rooms all the time. The doctors are checking, you know, everything. Blood transfusions, platelets. So it's all hands on deck. And anybody that's gone through cancer, you said it, survivor, fighter, warrior, utmost respect. But when someone tells me that they've gone through a stem cell transplant, I just say to myself, you know, hats off to you mm. because it takes you to a dark, dark place, mate, mm. where the walls are almost talking to you. And chemotherapy is the most toxic. First seven days, they give you like shots of it. So I'm thinking I've been pumped with chemotherapy, but why are we getting these like doses and so frequent? But what they were doing was giving you it in small doses because it is so toxic. And then they would come in and they keep asking me like, how is your gut? How are you still going to the toilet? And I was like, you know what? I've got the TV here. I've got a little exercise bike here. You're only allowed five visitors. So I had my mum, my, my wife, my brother, my best friend, and I was gonna need the fifth visitor that I'll get onto in a minute to come in and see me at some point. But at day 10, I just went under. And it's very hard for me to kind of put into words the state that I was in. It was almost like out of body. So some of the conversations, I couldn't get my head off the pillow, but I could hear them. And I could hear the, the urgency in some of the doctor's voices, these conversations that they were often having with Chantel. And then I knew she was going to try and give me the right kind of answers and deliver it the best way possible. 
but they were really worried about me and I was I went in nearly 13 stone and that is like my fighting weight when I was playing footy and I was nine and a half stone within 10 days yeah and I wasn't keeping anything down I was always being violently sick with chemotherapy I think for me it just wanted to get out of my system get it in do what it needs to do Lena, let's get it out I was pretty much bed bound and couldn't really get myself to the toilet so I was needing assistance that was quite demasculating you know some of the nurses see me in some bad states hallucinating I remember one night I went to sleep and it felt like you know like a SWAT team had come into the room and like smashed through the window and I found myself with I'd taken all the wires off and all the machines and I was shivering it was like cold turkey mm. is what I say and I then speak to the nurse in the morning and say, did that happen? Like thinking, was it a dream? And she was like, yeah, it did, but you're okay now. Your wife's coming, you know, and your brother's coming as well to come and see you. So at day 10, I was ready to throw the towel in me. It was rock bottom for me. And I knew that I was gonna need to see my little girl because first time round, Lula was one. Second time round, she was five. So she was going to want some answers at some point. You know, where's daddy gone? Daddy's in hospital. He's unwell, but he'll be back soon. But as the days slip away, I knew that she was getting more and more worried. And then I remember me and Chantel were sat watching Love Island. <laughs> My series. I don't know if it was, mate, but um, this is where we can have a little laugh and a joke about it because I got a little poxy bed single bed and Chantel's on it. It's our first wedding anniversary. We'd had a beautiful wedding in a B for the, the year before, but she'd lost her dad to cancer about three months after that wedding. It was like a military operation just to get him out there. It was lung cancer. So breathing was a problem. Getting him on a plane was a problem. So for him to walk her down the aisle wow. was like, it was like doing back-to-back -back marathons. Mm. I could see it, and I remember what he said to me at the end of it. He said to me, it's over to you now. And I knew what that meant was, he's got his wife, Chantelle, two daughters. So she's got a sister. He was like, the girls are over to you. And Lula was like, he's everything. She almost kept him alive for, mm. for four or five years. And I knew that that was a baton. I was going to take this family forward and, you know, be the leader. But we sat watching Love Island and I've got all these young couples telling each other they love each other. After, what, two, three weeks, <laughs> yeah. Casa and Moore comes around. They want to get out from one villa to the next. Yeah. And I got the remote and I launched it at the TV. And I said to Chantel, she was like, calm down. It's just a TV program. I said, like, I know, but here we are through sickness and health, living it that vow that we said 12 months ago. And I've got these couples doing it for, I'd say personal gain, but to stay in the show because they want to make something of the life, which I got nothing against. But then when I talk about like, you know, influencers, what are you influencing? Like, who are you influencing? And let's make sure if you are an influencer, you're adding substance and value to people's lives. It's so funny you say that though, because I'm so precious about the word love because I feel like 
there's so many people can just throw that word around and make a mockery of it. Yeah. And I believe in like the notebook kind of love. Yeah. Have you seen that film? Yeah. yeah. I believe in Noah and Ali. I'm going to build that house. Yeah. Um, Picket and, fence. Yeah, exactly. And I get it how when you're going through something so deep, you're almost feeling a level of... Anger. Deep, yeah, anger, but also you... you um you probably fully understand what love is, like to another level, probably a level that I've never experienced. I mean, what you and Chantel have been through together. Yeah. And also you've been at death's door, literally. So you're looking at life thinking, because I've got a friend who's also beat cancer and he said to me, he's the most positive guy I know now mm-hmm. in terms of, because he's been to the depths of despair. Yeah. That now he appreciates every emotion, every feeling. When anything's a tiny bit good, it's amplified. And yeah. I feel like you were at that point where you were going, don't play around with these emotions. Mm. Is that gone into your life now? Then obviously where you've got a new sort of appreciation for life. Yeah. So day 10, I'm really struggling. Day 12, I don't remember. Uh, but there's a picture of me where I'm living off machines. And... I say out of body experience, for two days, I was just trapped in my thoughts, physically not able to do much. And then she came in on, you know, wedding anniversary and she brought me some gifts because trainers are, are, are my thing. And she gave me a massive balloon that said the Thompsons. And I'd totally forgotten it was, you know, our wedding anniversary. So I just said to her, I've totally forgotten, Shan. But one thing I can give you right now, now I've just woken up, is I can give you the present. I can give you the present moment that we have and we're in it together. We can, you know, reminisce, we can go down memory lane and we can also start planning for the future. But I said, we need to make a big call here. And she said, what is it? I said, Lula needs to come in and see me. So children shouldn't be anywhere near that room. Anybody between 12 and under, coughs, sniffles, infections could be fatal because I had nothing to fight off. Blood levels are all on zero. So she said, but the doctors are going to kick off. I said, I'll deal with them when she gets to the door. There's no chance they're going to turn her away. I said, you get her here, uh, you tell her, you brace her, you prep her, and it's Father's Day in two days' time. So I say my life changed in 48 hours because I prepared myself because I knew that I was gonna need to be a beacon of hope for this little girl. So as she came in, I heard her and you had to wash yourself down outside the room. Then she came in and she just finished school. But in the morning of that visit, Chantel rang me and said, Lula's wet the bed. She's five, she's got nearly six now. Potty training's long gone, but she's obviously nervous, worried about coming to see her dad. Um, and what state you might be in. And she said, I've noticed a little grey hairs popped up in her head. So she's clearly stressed and worried. So I said, you get her in straight after school. You make sure she has a wonderful day at school. You tell the teachers where she's going after. And she comes in and this visit is going to be massive for both of us. She come in, 10, 15 minutes. She gave me a little card that she made with her, you know, her own hands. She's super proud of it. She did the stethoscope. You remember Doc McStuffins? <laughs> yeah, your heart's still beating. And I was like, yeah, it is still beating. But as she placed the card there, she come round the front of the bed and she said, as, as you know, children are, and I love kids because they're so honest and so pure with it. She just went, Daddy, are you going to die? So... Me as a father, my role is to protect. 
and for me to then give her the best answer possible out of nowhere because she did catch me off guard I said what do you mean she said well you've been in there for a long time now and you don't look like you're getting any better I was like I'm doing my best and the one thing I say to her and I say to anybody that I come across if you do your best and you fall short ain't no shame in that and you know the man in the mirror is a tough place to go it really is but if you can look yourself dead in the eye and be honest with yourself that's a beautiful place to be I mean anyone can talk the talk but to walk the walk is a different thing so within three days of having that little meeting with the boss because she is the boss she left me and she said well you do your best and I'm sure it's good enough and just keep listening to the doctors right <sighs> three days and this is where my like obsession with mindset and psychology and like mentality has come from because that just reignited the fire for me the lights came back on i set my alarm for the first time in a long time to get up the next day and i was just gonna do my best to get to the toilet i was gonna have a shower i took all the hair off because i was losing my hair i was gonna wear that uniform that is associated with you know a cancer patient and i was gonna embrace it um all my blood shot up through the roof, shot up through the roof. So this is where we start talking about like mind, body and soul and spirit, like it's massive. And I was reborn again, that's all I say. I kind of shed that identity. And that for me is what life's about. It's not here for you to be that person and stay that person. The essence of life is to grow, is to evolve, is to love, is to hurt, is to be vulnerable. Um, and I think true strength comes from being able to acknowledge your vulnerability. And that was me at my weakest as a, as a person. But yeah, I, and, I'm a different person because of it. And do you feel it was that moment with your daughter and those wise words from such a young soul that gave you that light that you needed at that moment in time? Most definitely. And it's so interesting that sometimes we find the inspiration from, in, everywhere. from everywhere yeah. like I've just found inspiration from this story right now like literally I can't tell you how much it's touched me so you've then gone on to, to beat cancer for the second time yeah right so you've gone on to beat it and then literally I'm guessing did you then realise that your purpose on planet earth was to use your story then to help inspire and motivate other people because that's what you're doing now, right? So you're, you're a public speaker now. Mm-hmm. You're an author. You've written a great book called mm-hmm. Dark, Darkness and Light yep. about your story. You're going around mentoring now young footballers and people in business. Do you feel like now that's your calling in life? Purpose nailed it, most definitely. I always thought my one thing was to be a professional footballer. When you get there, it's amazing. But there is things that come with it that maybe at a younger age you're unaware of. But I learned to appreciate life. So when I managed to come out after those 18 days of hell, which they were, I should have been wheelchaired out, but I walked out propped up with my little girl there, Chantel behind me, and that balloon that was keeping me like that. And I remember I come out and, you know, in Manchester, notorious for the rain. I took my hood off and I felt the rain come on, like my bald head, I lost all my hair, my eyebrows, everything. And I just remember crying, but I was almost at one with nature because tears, the water, breathing, uh, fresh air. 
So my purpose had changed. The one thing I wanted to do though was do one more thing in football and I wanted to hit the back of the net one more time and score a goal. And I wanted to show people that you can be as low as low, but you can also shine again. And when you do shine again, that fire and that flame is going to burn so bright, it's going to go so far. So when I scored the goal on the end of the season that kept Rochdale up, that was the ending of the book for me. So when I was doing it with Alex Fenn, who um, I'd come across with doing some work for 442 magazine, the idea had come about about the book. But the end chapter, that I thought was the end chapter, was the goal. I played at Wembley in an FA Cup replay. They was like buzzing. They was like, we've done it. We've got it. That's it. And then they said to me, the, the publishers and Alex, he said, you need to go back and see your dad. And I was like, what? I need to go back and see my dad. He said, you're a father now. You're the best father you can possibly be, but you've got some unanswered questions that you need to go and have with your dad. So I rang my dad. Well, I found out where he was and he was in prison, down, down south. So it was like a six hour journey. And I had two hours with him and we had a great conversation. I came away with some answers, not all, but I found peace from that. And that resentment was never there for me anymore. Maybe subconsciously it was through my whole life. Or why have you not been around? Why have you not, you know, reached out? Um, I'm one of like six children. So me and my brother to my mum, but I've got half brothers and sisters. And I thought like, you've not learned your lesson. So when the book came out, that was amazing. And that did amazing. And then, you know, still doing great things. But darkness and light is the essence of life. And then I started doing talks. And the first talk that I did was at Man City for their under 23s. And it wasn't long after I'd left the hospital. So I couldn't drive, I couldn't get myself there. I was weak, I was frail. But if I could nail that at Man City and being in around the first team as well and be the beacon of light and strength, I thought, this is a bit of me. So all I was doing was changing the green stage, as I like to call a footy pitch, to the big stage. And one thing I always said at the start is about expressing yourself. I'm going to go up on stage and when I do a talk, whether it's in front of 20 people, a business in front of 100, thousands and more, I know as long as I'm authentic, they'll get it. It will resonate with them. So never deviate too far from it. And loyalty and integrity and authenticity for me are huge. So you're basically using your story now and the strength that you used to overcome a really difficult situation to give other people that kind of positive... I want to empower them. Yeah, empower them. I do. Yeah. And I want them to own their flaws mm. as well. If you can feel it, you can heal it. That's mm. what I say. So we go through it. We have to go through it. But once I empower you, you go and empower somebody else. Well, you definitely empowered me today. But just as, before we kind of wrap up, I wanted to talk about, obviously, your experience with your life insurance mm -hmm. bespoke and health, obviously yeah. now you've launched bespoke health and that comes from a really sort of sentimental place for you because obviously when you got diagnosed with cancer yeah you realized quite quickly that you didn't have yourself covered with life insurance and that led to a massive kind of financial loss for you yeah. which would have helped your family supported them so tell me a little bit about that and what you're trying to do now with bespoke health so like you said i go into a lot of companies now and sometimes it's a leadership program Sometimes it's just a talk. Sometimes it's quarterly. 
and we review it. Um, but I went into Bespoke Health, which is a company up in Teesside, which are the UK's number one life insurance provider and critical illness insurance provider. I just make sure now that everyone that I come across has an education around it, an awareness of it. And when you talk about life insurance and critical illness, people think it's expensive. It can be, but if we tailor it to you, i.e. bespoke health, then that package is perfect for you and where you're at. It can always be tweaked. And the one thing we always have on our policies now that we have fought for for the last two or three years with all the big providers is that anybody that's got children the children go free on those critical illness policies because those are the ones that I care about. Life insurance, you're never going to see it. That's for generational wealth to protect your assets and make sure your kids have a wonderful life. And the one thing that really scared me, you know, was last year we lost a little baby boy. You know, we had a stillborn and we lost Dre 48 hours before his due date. So to see Chantel give birth, no pain relief, so elegant, so graceful and beautiful was incredible. And I felt so, so powerless. But Lula then comes in half an hour after he was born and says, I want to see him, I want to hold him. So that is, a, you know, an image that's etched in, in my mind. It's not going anywhere, that. Joe, when you're going through that as well, after everything you've been through, do you start asking yourself, like... How many more? Yeah, like, why me? Or, like, when you're going through another kind of heart... Not even heartache, like, I can't even describe what it is. Do you just get to the point and go, why me? And how do you get yourself out of that situation? I kind of shed the why me a long, long time ago. Mm. And just say, like, why not me? Mm. And I, uh, I'm a big believer now... Almost going to be like the last samurai. I'm going to go through all the pain. I'm going to deal with it all, whether I want it or not. And listen, don't get me wrong, I don't want adversity to come knocking on our door anytime soon. But I can almost hold on to the fact that we've had some big knockbacks and we're still standing. Mm. Um, and that last one was like... I just felt powerless. Mm. I don't mind me going through the pain, but to see the girls go through it was just like, wow. And to then see Lula do that was like, well, if she can do that, Chantel can do that, it ain't about me. Mm. So, you know, from the stem cell transplant, I've been told that we would never have kids again because it can make you infertile. Loads of testing and yeah, it was the case. So we've been on a whole IVF journey. We've lost babies. And then obviously when we find out we've got Dre and we get so close to the finishing line, was just gutting. And one of my friends who's still within football now, a great guy called Dean Holden, he lost a little baby. Uh, it'd probably be about 10 years ago now. But I remember going to the funeral and I witnessed him carry this little coffin that should never ever be any parent. And he stumbled to that altar. So when I then had to do that, I was just drawing off the strength that he'd shown. Mm. And then we just said, you know what, let's just rest. Let's just come down off it. And people always ask me that question about like, do you think there's only so much you can go through? 
have you ever been depressed? I will have been depressed. I probably don't, you know, put it in that box, but I've been low. We've been low. But we always know that we can come again, and that's why we called him Dre Phoenix, because the Phoenix is reborn. Wow. The Phoenix comes again. It's born out of the ashes of kind of turmoil. So then when we find out at the start of this year that, you know, we're pregnant and we've conceived naturally, was just like, a minor miracle. Yes, there was an element of me, you know, beating on my chest, <laughs> thinking, yeah, I'm back in the game, but um, it is a miracle uh, and it's the beauty of life. And we then had a, uh, you know, a home birth, just me, Lula, Chantel, uh, her mum and her sister. And, you know, that was like a free birth. That was just us as a family. So for us to bring Athena in to the world after we've been through everything was like incredible, man. It was and like someone will say to me, like, you're crazy. No midwife, no <laughs> doctors. Like, but we knew we were going to be fine. We knew. We'd done our homework, you know, hours of research and we wanted to empower ourselves. And I look at Athena now, she's been on this earth for eight weeks. So alert, so content so happy and it's because of a kind of journey into the world do you know what you are just literally living proof of adversity will always kind of lead to greatness if you find the strength to power through yeah and you've been through so many lows but you've always managed to find some kind of positive light at the end of the tunnel whether it's being sat here right now passing on your story inspiring other people and then even not giving up on, on the whole sort of childbirth part of your life into, and then having Athena Ray now it's like literally you always come out I don't know on top because obviously you, you have to go through a lot yeah. you, you always come, just the way you were talking and the smile on your face about your beautiful daughter it's like you just give everybody hope I think and I just want to say a massive thank you Joe because literally I knew you were going to be a good guest but you have literally just blown my mind and you really do inspire me, mate. Like, honestly, to the point where I've just got tingles about four times throughout this and I've nearly cried about four times, man. And I'm not scared to say it. But I just want to say a massive thank you and, and also just a shout out to Bespoke Health as well because I never think about life insurance and I always think it's never going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. And to see how it impacted your life, I think it's an important message to put out there. So if anyone wants to um, follow Joe, it's at, is it at Joe.Thompson? I am Joe Thompson. Yeah. I am Joe Thompson. There That's we go. It. Flaws I, and all. I like it. I like it. But massive thank you, mate. And um, keep inspiring and keep thriving, as you said. Privilege. Amazing. Absolute pleasure to be on, mate. That was probably one of the most emotional episodes I've done to date on this podcast. Joe literally has put so much in perspective for me. Some days I feel really sorry for myself. And when I'm going through tough times, I know I'm going to get through them and I know I'm going to find a light. Wow, he has been to the depths of despair in so many different ways. And he's always found a reason to fight and power through. And he's also always found that light at the end of the tunnel, which is highlighted in the birth of his baby daughter as well, Athena Ray. And he's just now using his story to pass on so much inspiration to other people. So I'm just really, really grateful to have him in my life. Thank you for listening to the podcast. The support is so much appreciated. Please continue to like, share, follow, and also tag me on Instagram at scott.thomas with any of your takeaways from the podcast but thank you again for listening and I'll be back next week with a special edition of Learning As I Go